Content warning. War, eugenics, racism, mass destruction, crackpot science, and those pesky Nazis. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Dark and stormy night. Wait, uh, sorry, wrong book. Uh, give me a second. Therewith, Z began to enter into an explanation of which I understood very little, for there is no word in any language I know which is an exact synonym for vril. I should call it electricity, except that it comprehends in its manifold branches other forms of nature to which our scientific nomenclature differing names are assigned such as magnetism, galvanism, etc. This is uh, from The Coming Race, 1871, by Edward George Bulwer-Lytton. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe, a podcast where we talk about pulp novels from the classic to the obscure. I'm Philip, and with me, is, as always, is Adam. Hello. And today we're once again joined by a special guest, uh, Jess Nevins. Hello, Jess. Hello. Uh, today we're discussing a book from an author who these days suffers from a very negative reputation. He's most famous now for starting his uh, 1830 novel, Paul Clifford, with the following sentence. It was a dark and stormy night. The rain fell in torrents, except at occasional intervals, when it was checked by a violent gust of wind which swept up the streets, for it was London that our scene lies, rattling through the housetops and fiercely agitating the scanty flame of the lamps which struggled against the darkness. <laughs> Catchy. Um, there's a writing prize named after him that uh, invites authors to come up with the worst opening lines possible for a novel. It's been going since uh, 1982. But we come not to bury Bower Lytton, but to praise him, I guess. In his day, he coined phrases such as the great unwashed, pursuit of the almighty dollar, the pen is mightier than the sword, and dweller on the threshold. Uh, Jess, without, maybe without going into too much about this specific book we're talking about today, I believe you have some thoughts on Mr. Bulwer-Lytton's talents in general? Yeah, he was, um, to, to borrow the, the term from baseball, he was a five-tool player. He was, he, he either created genres or helped popularize them. He, he was, one of his mysteries was signally influential on Edgar Allan Poe when Poe wrote his mysteries, which founded the genre. Um, a Coming Race helped establish science fiction as a viable genre. He was influential in creating the domestic 
realism genre in historical novels. He was he had a talent unmatched in the 19th century in putting a book out when it was the most timely. Um, he was he was popular. He was critically esteemed. His style evolved over time so that uh, in the 1830s he was writing crime novels. In the 1820s he was writing high society novels that were witty and sort of not like not Jane Austen like, but in the same rough area. Then he wrote, he established the occult fantasy genre and wrote his most long winded works. And then in the 1860s, 1870s, his style evolves into something that's a lot less dated. And so you've got the coming race. So he's, he gets a bad rap, but the the things he gets criticized the most for are common in writers of the 1830s so that you get the same really overextended opening sentences in in Charles Dickens for example mm. so i i i feel a i don't have any personal connection to bulwer lytton but i feel like i ne- always need to defend his his good name <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, that's that's that is interesting. This is the first um, Bulwer Lytton I've read, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's um, I, I would hardly say, oh yeah, this guy is so much worse than you know any of his contemporaneous writers. You yeah, know, like, it's a little overwritten. There's a little perp. Um, it's very purple prose, but mm-hmm. it's not terrible by any means. Yeah, I mean, the main thing with this. Well, let's. <laughs> oh uh, uh, yeah, um, talk about I, the story. I still have more of the preamble here. Yeah. Uh, the novel we're here to discuss is a science fiction story called, alternatively, Vril, The Coming Race, or Vril, The Power of the Coming Race. Uh, it deals with the discovery of an underground civilization of humans who have uh, harnessed an energy source called Vril, capable of great destruction and creation, healing, mind control, and pretty much anything you can name. The society is so greatly prizes this energy that they name themselves after it, and the vril look down upon uh, those who have yet to discover it and harness it as barbarians. Yeah, so it's it's basically a guy uh, who's a who's working in a mining concern uh, ends up falling you know deep into the earth, or rather he uh, sorry a guy who had uh, one of the workers who had gone deep into the earth uh, comes back with stories of oh I saw light coming from underneath underneath the ground. So he goes with the guy on an expedition and they end up uh, descending. I, they do fall right like yeah. they accidentally fall down and, and then, the other guy dies and the other guy dies and they they and but the narrator who's never given a name. Um, discovers this uh that there's this entire civilization living down there called the Vrilia. Um was this the first Jess example of a, you know, underground civilization hollow earth? It, it can't have been the first, right? No, no, it wasn't. No. There were there were uh, hollow earth hollow earth novels uh, go back to the start of um to the start of novel writing. Uh, it was it was well established by the time he wrote. There was uh, an important one called "The Journey of Niels Kim to the World Underground" in seventeen forty one, and then there was a um, the there were novels written in the eighteen twenties because of a American soldier who popularized the idea of the hollow earth. 
1838, you had Edgar Allan Poe's The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Right. And then you had Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth. And so mm-hmm. it, it it's actually rather, uh, the coming race is, is actually rather late in the, in the history of the genre for as far as hollow earth novels go. Okay. Sorry. You, you said, you said something about an American soldier in 1820. What was that? What was that about? Uh, John Cleve Sims was this American soldier who became obsessed with the idea that the earth was hollow and that there was an entrance in the North pole. And so he wrote about, he wrote articles about it. He wrote stories about it. He went on lecture tours uh, there was at least one failed expedition, and the the th- the theory of the hollow earth became known as the Sims theory. Um, mm-hmm. It was he. It it took off because of of every because of everything he did and and the way he popularized it. I see. Did, would, did he, was he inspired by something specific or did he just, uh, like he just woke up one day and said, the earth must be hollow. No, it was a, it was a E-Day fix, fix. Uh, it was just this obsession he had, um, hmm. that he was, he was going to prove the world right. And, you know, it's, it's the 1810s, 1820s. There's not, they, they haven't mapped the world yet. There's, they they haven't come up with the idea of tectonic plates. They there's a lot still unknown about the Earth, and so it. While the idea of the hollow Earth is ridiculous to us now, back then it was it was mm. no more ridiculous than a lot of what people were talking about as far as the right. the substance of the Earth. It should be noted there's two kinds of hollow Earth uh, in these kinds of stories or theories. Uh, the first kind that uh, you were talking about is literally the Earth is just a hollow shell. Uh, the crust uh, exists on the outside, and generally on the inside, there's a uh, the core is a central sun. Right. Um, so this is uh, what appears in, say, the uh, Pellucidar stories by Edgar Rice Burroughs, which is much later, or the... Um, uh, print, uh, Queen of Atvatabar by, who was that by again? Um, I, I don't remember offhand. I, I know which, which, yeah, I'm sorry. I should have written that down. <laughs> uh, and, uh, the second kind is the idea that, uh, the, the crust or the mantle or something has massive caverns in it. So that's, uh, like the journey to the center of the earth and this one. Right. So this is, uh, a large country-sized cavern in the crust of the earth right so with the with the the core is the central sun so they think gravity reverses itself and you're yeah yeah around. so people walk on the uh on the inner surface and that's the ground so the the ground in the distance seemed to slope upwards hmm. that's kind of what's an example of that phil that you're well like of? i said pellucidar is the most yeah? probably the oh, okay the most uh, uh still relevant example <laughs> Right. That people still read, basically. Right, right. And it's usually also, if I correct me if I'm wrong, it's usually also associated with, uh, oh yeah, ancient peoples and ancient yeah yeah dinosaurs forms of life, are a dinosaurs. Frequent thing. Yeah, exactly. And and in this one as well, uh, these guys are sort of said to have. What was the explanation given in this again? It was they were uh, driven under. They're by the flood. antediluvians, so they're right. uh, 
uh, before Noah's flood, basically. Right. Uh, it seems to take that as something that actually happened. Right. Um, and it also has, uh, it's sort of as dinosaurs, there's giant crocodile alligator right. things called Kreka. Yeah. Um, so, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 a whole different ecosystem, basically. And the Virilia themselves. So, he meets these Virilia, and they're basically hyper-sophisticated, more advanced than us, uh, and they have most notably wings, although they're artificial wings. They're not uh, organic wings. I think he's a little vague. No, on they're that, they're definitely artificial. They work on springs, and they're right. they said they come from a type of bird that they have. Right. Uh, yeah. He says they can take them off. Obviously. Yeah. But it, uh, there's other times where it really makes it sound like they're actually part of their body. It's. it's I think weird. that's uh, yeah. uh, create or poetic license. Mm. Fair enough. And then, so the other thing about Bulwer-Lytton is um, he's got kind of a Tolkienian thing where he literally spends about the middle ha- chunk of the book <laughs> talking about their language and their cultural... De- like, he go- there's an entire chapter on how their language works, basically. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of actual plot here. Yeah. It, the plot is very bare bones, and it's uh, mostly about the culture and how it compares with ours, which is yeah. basically we suck compared to them. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, what were you saying there, Jess? Um, well, that, that's sort of a uh, the the focus on the the utopian society is sort of a nineteenth century thing. Um, there aren't very many utopian novels that took that took it to the extreme of uh, inventing languages and detailing the languages. But going back to the original utopia, it's plots tend to be bare bone, as you say, and the interest of the reader is presumed by the writer to be about how the utopian society exists and the details of it. Um, it's one of the reasons why you don't get good utopian novels now. It's because readers want things like character development and, and plots. And they, hmm. the expectation really wasn't there as much back in the 19th century. Right. Yeah, I was really impressed by just how long he went on for, for building the world. And that's the interesting thing, because these novels, I guess, have a tendency to t- become... I, the author, I'm going to tell you what the perfect society would be and how great it would be if we could uh, we could do things a certain way. Um, I didn't necessarily get the impression that Bulwer-Lytton was saying, this is great and good and we should all do it this way. He seems to be kind of critical of them. Am I crazy? No. Yeah, I think uh, um, the idea is that the Vrilya are so far above us that they can function this way, but if we tried, we couldn't. Right. Uh, it's it's pretty much stated, I think. Um, uh, we're barbarians because we don't have vril. Vril, right. Uh, right. Which is the, the thing that advanced them to this point. And, it, um, oh, we'll get into hereditary yeah. stuff later. But uh, democracy is uh, largely looked down upon in these communities, in the vril nations. Right. Um, uh, being described uh, by the derisive word kumpush, uh, that will inevitably inevitably lead to uh, gleknas, or universal strife and rot. Uh, instead, they're autocratic, and um, but uh, it works for them because the inheritors of power don't want to seek more power. Right. But that just seems to come from a natural goodness rather than the political system. Right, yeah. 
What, uh, Jess, sorry, you had a thought on that? Um, you were, well, yeah. it's it's a utopia and a utopian satire. He wrote it, um, Bulwer Lytton wrote it in the wake of the Franco-Prussian War in, in 1870, 1871, when the idea of the French emancipation of the poor was viewed by the ruling classes of England and Bulwer Lytton is among was one of them as a real threat. So you've got this communist utopia, but it's really sterile and, and kind of unlikable. Uh, Bulwer Lytton goes after emancipation of the poor, goes after evolution, um, American democracy, feminism. Yeah. You know, he, he's, He's he's sort of shotgun spraying his satire everywhere, and it's he does it. It the result is uneven, but it's it's definitely satirical. Um, right. And he didn't. I I think he didn't. He 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 was sort of operated with a split mind in that he spends all this time talking about the utopia and praising it, but at the same time he really seems to have thought that the utopia was was a bad thing um in in his uh 1872 novel the parisians he talks about how great the the french are because of their individualistic qualities and how glorious paris is and he specifically compares the french to the vrilya and so oh. you know he's there's a, a literary criticism term called the preferred inscribed narrative, which is what basically what the author's intent for the novel is. Um, and I think his intent is to show that, yeah, they're the coming race, but they're not what they, what they are going to do is not good. Right. There's definitely a sense in the art that they create. Uh, they, don't basically right um only older works are looked upon as worthy artistically and uh because they come from a time when they still had passions basically right um and modern art is just sort of ignored Mm -hmm. or not even bothered with and uh um it's yeah sort of we've attained our We've attained the heights of yeah. you know, that humans can attain, so yeah. there's nothing to drive us to create new art or to create new, mm. uh, and new ideas. And if somebody did come up with an idea to change society, nobody would want to read it because they have a perfect society. Right, exactly. And, and I mean, he, he very openly near the beginning kind of says, uh, you know, you'll understand why I don't want to tell you where this all happened because I don't want anyone to stumble across this uh, society and and I mean it's called the coming race, which is kind of ominous, basically. Just right. Yeah, from there's the start. there's an ominous idea coming through that they'll. Uh, well, it, it should be mentioned the Vril are, are extremely arrogant. They view everybody who doesn't have Vril as basically mm-hmm. subhuman. Um, and um, it, there's parts because there are uh, underground civilizations in this book that don't have Vril, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, it describes genocide, basically. Like, if these people uh, start threatening the Vrilya in any way, the Vrilya will send a couple kids with Vril straps and just wipe them out. Right. Like, an entire mm-hmm. race of people just gone because they were, because right. these people were inconvenienced. Yeah. 
Let's talk a bit about Vril. Um, I know, uh, and you mentioned, uh, you were mentioning, Phil, about how uh, people like Blavatsky sort of latched on. This is another, this is another pulp idea that got latched onto by occultists around that time, it sounds like. Um, uh, yes, uh, Blavatsky was a big v- believer in Vril as an actual mystical force. Right. Uh, she wrote about it in her books, Isis Unveiled and Secret Doctrine, neither of which I've read. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it so, was also written about in one I did read um, by a theosophist, uh, William, Elliot, William Scott Elliott, uh, who described an alleged history of uh, Atlantis and the story of Atlantis and Lost Lemuria. Uh, 1896, mm-hmm. and it describes uh, the Atlanteans having airships powered by Vril. And like I said, this was supposedly history based on psychic. I yeah. Don't know. So now, so did she j- literally just read the story and go, "That must be real"? Yeah. They uh, uh, there was a common belief that uh, uh, Bulwer Lytton was uh, an adept of some sort, like uh, initiated. There's no evidence for this, but they just assume so because he had such good knowledge about right. what they believed. And Je- uh, it's a little confusing. Jessa, he 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 basically he completely made this up, right? He did not <laughs> attempt to argue that this was real, right? Right. In, in his life, right? Yeah. yeah. It was. It was just. It was a novel that he wrote late in his life, and it made him a lot of money, and he was happy about that. The Blavatsky seizing on it was, I don't think he would have approved of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, and then, of course, you've got other worse people who... uh, Yeah, um, uh, the Nazis were interested in this to some degree, though the idea that there was a real society in pre-Nazi Germany that was a secret group of the Thule Society is based on claims made in the 1960s, which historians do not believe happened so the real society that we've heard about often in conspiracy theories is probably not a real thing but it's uh the real uh, ideas picked up in modern uh, nazi occultism uh there's a specific cult named uh, uh, temple hof shaft i don't know temple hof gesselschaft <laughs> yeah Thank you. Yeah. Um, so they tie Vril into uh, how UFOs supposedly work right. and the black sun symbol and all that nonsense. Yeah. But the, the so the Nazis, but they they did have some sort of occult beliefs, like the uh, full society. Yeah, though, right? it's it's overplayed in media though. Mm, okay. Like they like Hitler did not get the Spear of Destiny because he thought it would actually do anything. <laughs> it was just like a cool thing. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, Jess, our last show, you were saying. Um, that you seem to be basically crediting Bulwer-Lytton with not originating the science fiction genre, but having a huge impact on making it profitable, I think you said, uh, in that time period? Yeah. Um, May 1st, 1871 was the day that um, The Coming Race was published, was the day that uh, George Chesney's The Battle of Dorking was published, and was the day that Samuel... Butler turned in the manuscript for Erewhon into the Mm. publisher. And so May 1st, 1871, because of the overwhelming (laughs) popularity of the coming race and of the Battle of Dorking, I've made the argument before in print that you can pretty much credit Dorking and Bulwer-Lytton with not establishing science fiction, but with popularizing it and establishing it as a marketing genre. 
so mm. that be, because numerically the number of science fiction works and novels written goes up by a, a pretty substantial amount in the years after 1871. I, I think there's like five a year being written by 1875, whereas there was maybe one novel a year written before 1871. Hmm. Interesting. So it was, what was the Battle of Dorking? I'm not familiar with that one. Okay. Um, Battle of Dorking, it was written by a, a British uh, major general who wanted, I think, who wanted to warn Britain that their military was underprepared for the inevitable coming European war. And so the Battle of Dorking is the story of the invasion of England and the titular Battle of Dorking in which the British army is undermanned and undergunned and outgeneraled and defeated. And the invaders are never na specifically named, but you can tell they're they're meant to be German. And hmm. so this was the start of the future war genre, which was just enormously popular in the up up through 1914. Um, and even today, when you when you get any any novel, any story that's talking about how we're about to be invaded by. Um, like Red Dawn, for example, that <laughs> that's right out of the Battle of Dorking. Huh, <laughs> that's interesting. And the, just the fact that he had Germany going to war with—I mean, I guess you know—it's you could throw a dart at a board at Europe and assume those two countries would be fighting each other in the 19th century, but still, or up to the 19th century. But I—that's that's that's, uh, that's pretty ominous. I know in uh, I know a lot of uh, late nineteenth century was kind of obsessed with, I guess aerial like aerial bombardment and ideas of like what the future of war was going to be like. That's that's interesting. Anyway, but getting a little off topic though. But uh, yeah, anyway, kind of cool. Sorry, Phil. Oh, go ahead. Uh, something I was thinking about uh, the uh, there's an idea in the story that the, partially they have a peaceful society because every member has uh, the Vril staff, which can instantly kill anybody else or <laughs> right. wipe out the entire civilization if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this is sort of ties into modern ideas like mutually assured destruction. Right. Um, the idea that everybody's just carrying a nuke around, basically. Right. Yeah. Uh, and also the uh, the NRA phrase, uh, a pol an armed society is a polite society, which, you know... Mm -hmm. Uh, but it seems to take that idea as something that's actually realistic. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's. <laughs> yeah, speaking of it, the, the Vril staffs, did either of you ever come across mention of the the unauthorized sequel to The Coming Race? No. No. It's called The Vril Staff, and it's... Okay. The author is, is a pseudonym, XYZ, and it's basically about what happens when this one Irishman gets a Vril staff and he, okay. he wipes out, uh, he wipes out Indians. He wipes out Europeans. He wipes out Russians. Um, a forces basically forces world peace onto the, onto the world. And it's, he, he puts up a force field that, prevents the British artillery units from shelling him. Um, 
he he overthrows the Anglican Church. He wipes out <laughs> Cossacks. Uh, he uh, anyway, it goes on and on like that. It's when not, was this written? Eighteen ninety eight. Okay. Yeah, I haven't heard of or, this at excuse all. Excuse me, eighteen ninety one. Um, okay. It's it's really obscure. The only copy I ever found of it was in the British Library, but <laughs> it's a really bold faced unashamed <laughs> sequel, unauthorized sequel that the Bulwer-Lytton estate had no say in. And well, we, go ahead. It, sorry. It, it's, it basically takes the premise of what if this angry Irishman found <laughs> a pocket nuke and <laughs> takes it as far as it'll go. What was the author Irish? Is that why he's an Irish guy or nobody what? knows. <laughs> Or was it was it racism against the Irish that was causing that? It, um, it also doesn't make sense with the original book because yeah, uh, it's explained that staff, uh, yeah, without the uh, hereditary use, uh, yeah, which is, doesn't make any sense. But um, right, basically, uh, the Vrilya have an extra nerve in their palm, which right. allows them to manipulate, and that nerve came about from constant use yeah. over century, over generations. Yeah, he's pretty specific about in the book about how you can't. He couldn't steal the Vril's technology because he can't use it, including the wings as well. And uh, there is a moment where uh, the the daughter of the, uh, the 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 Vril Lord who took him in, Z, yeah. Z, yeah, she basically says, "I'll go with you." Like she falls in love with him, and she's really devoted because the heroine is always some girl is always going to fall mm. in love with the hero in these novels, even though they, they, she thinks he's an inferior life form. <laughs> she's in love with him, uh, but he he literally uh, she literally offers to come with him. Uh, above and he's like oh i could use her and we could control we could rule the world basically together and he but then he's actually noble enough to say yeah but that's not fair to her so i'm not going to do that but he would need her to come along to be able to use the viril technology which you wouldn't uh, he wouldn't be able to use on his own and they're very spe- he's very specific about that so yeah, yeah oh, speaking the- of racism uh sure. let's talk about race in this book <laughs> hang on just uh, oh, just had something to say sorry go ahead um yeah in the viril staff i I'd, I'd forgotten the Irishman invents a real staff. He doesn't find one. He oh. invents it. That makes oh. it completely different. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So he doesn't have any contact with the Vrilia at all. No, they don't even mention the only use of the word Vril is in the novel's title, but it's pretty clear that he's the, the author's intention was to write a, a novel about what happens if this one guy got a real staff and could use it. Anyhow, hmm. so it racism. Sounds, sounds like it. Yeah, it sounds like everyone was kind of caught up with the idea of the Vril. I know later they had Orgon energy. That sounds like it might have been uh, descended from the idea of the Vril. Well, they already had uh, things like Odic Force, which is mentioned in the in the story. Uh, there were a lot of pseudoscientific ideas about energy that didn't, came yeah. out of humans, and there was mm-hmm. mem- mesmerism and uh, the ether. It, I think it all ties back into like early ideas of the unified field theory, and I think that's what Vril sort of is. Mm-hmm. Well, but that would have predated uh, anything like uh, Einstein or anything, right? Yeah, but- yeah, they were already talking about that, uh, or I early versions of it. Hmm. of a unified field theory. Obviously, it wasn't called that, but just it's right. a similar idea, and hmm. it was being thought about at the time. Hmm. Anyway, racism. You were going to say racism. Uh, yeah. Um, the book has some uh, problematic issues, let's say. Um, the uh, uh, Vrilya, um, who have uh, brown skin, 
uh, are sub- a superior race, but uh, to the to anybody on the surface world. But the use of phrenology is still a bit uh, troubling. The, it, there's an entire like long couple sentences that describe the shape of the Vrilia skulls and how they correspond to you know their their superior emotions and uh, attitude. Um, uh, although it goes back and forth, there are different races of Rilia. Some are described as having fair skin and blue eyes, and interracial marriages are uh, permitted and even encouraged as uh, uh, making things better for everybody. So that's interesting. Uh, and like we talked about, it uh, very much believes in a um, or the book, uh, the scientific aspect of it, uh, the idea of uh, hereditary uh, traits being, uh, or a very uh, Lamarckian evolution rather than Darwinian evolution, I suppose, mm-hmm. where um, Lamarck believed that uh, traits that you uh, experienced in life could be passed on to your children. So, like, the giraffe's neck was long because its right. ancestors tried to stretch their necks up, and yeah. that built up over generations. Yeah. Well, you, and you mentioned here, or you, you remind me that they talk briefly about how they believe they evolved from frogs. Yeah, I was going to mention that, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, the Vrilia have a uh, belief that they believe has been proven scientifically that they evolved from a large kind of frog, and that's uh, evidence of this is, uh, say, they have... They don't have sharp teeth like we do. Right. Uh, they're just vegetarians. and. But, but I mean, they're supposed to be basically human, right? Yeah, it's a little confusing uh, whether this is a parody of evolution yeah. or this is supposed to be something that actually is true in the uh, you, novel's world. What do you think, Jess? Is that is that another satirical thing? or is Oh, that... yeah. Yeah, it's, it's Bulwer-Lytton in sort of lumbering way using typical Victorian humor against... The idea of, of Darwinism and evolution. Not monkeys, but frogs. Get it? Get it? <laughs> right. Get it? Yeah, yeah. So he doesn't, so he would, he was not a believer in Darwin then, or? No, he was, um, he was, he was pretty traditional and conservative in his views, and he, he was not a, a fan of the implications of Darwinism. Hmm. It's interesting because it is called the coming, re- but I, again, you're saying it's a satire and it's probably parody, but it it does sort of imply a superior race that can come and supplant the other one. Uh, <laughs> you know that that seems to tie into a Darwinian outlook in some ways. Um. Well, he. Uh, it's. I I think it was more. I I, I misspoke. I I don't think he was exactly anti-Darwin as misunderstanding Darwin. Um, There's a quote from another one of his novels, uh, his last novel, Kenelm Chillingly, written 1873, where he, in the the preface to the book, he says, the Darwinian proposition that a coming race is destined to supplant our races, that such a race would be very gradually formed and be indeed a new species developing itself of our old one and that, and that this process would be invisible to our eyes and therefore in some region unknown to us. Um, he, he's he's dis- disapproving of the implications and the end result of uh, a sort of misunderstanding of Darwin. 
if that makes sense. Okay, all right. Well, that's a little less <laughs> grotty then in that regard. Actually, uh, Bulwer Lytton was kind of an interesting guy uh, when I was researching him because, of course, he was a baronet. Um, he, uh, you know, he he had uh, he was in British Columbia for a while during the gold rush. He had a whole uh, uh, team of engine Army Corps engineers that he was with. Um, he apparently was offered the throne of Greece what? and turned it down. Yes. And this is mentioned, like everything I read about him was just mentions this very passingly. I'm like, what? Why did he get offered the throne of Greece? Had you heard about that, Jess, at all? Yeah. He, um, he led a pretty event-filled life. Did you read about mm-hmm. his, um, his wife and their relationship? Yeah. Yeah. He married against his mother's wishes, I believe. Right, and it turned out horribly. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> they got a divorce and, uh, well, y- you tell it, Jess. Well, they, basically, it was, a, it was a marriage of passion and the passion faded and then they came to loathe each other. And so she would try to show up at his speeches and interrupt, his, interrupt what he was saying. And she wrote... Uh, a novel, a really thinly veiled novel that let the world know how awful a husband he was. And just, it was a nightmare relationship for both of them. Yeah. Well, didn't he try to have her committed to an insane asylum at one point? Oh, that's right. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah. It sounded like they they really hated each other after a while there. They were really going at it. But yeah, yeah. She wrote a novel. She wrote her biography and it was all about how horrible he was to her and everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of feminism, and I think this yes. was mentioned earlier. Yeah, good, th- um, good segue. There, there are uh, some feminist ideas in the story, uh, yeah. whether they're supposed to be uh, uh, taken seriously or not. But the um, women of the Vrilya, which are called uh, in their language Jaye or singular Gi, are taller and stronger than men, um, which are Arna or sim- singular Arn. Um, they woo in romantic relationships. So, uh, it's basically flipped from what the Victorian idea was where the man woos the woman and yeah. the, uh, in this case, the, in the case of the Vrilya, the men act, are supposed to act coquettish and right. standoffish and then eventually give in. It's sort of semi-matriarchal society, even though the men still are kind of in charge, more yeah. or less. Yeah, but the, he talks about the, the women being the more aggressive race and, and proposing to the men and being in charge. And I didn't really get the sense that he was trying to like take the piss out of feminism. I didn't feel like he was no, really it, attacking it, it them. No, it describes them, um, the... Uh, Women have to sort of acquiesce to the, like, because they want the men, so they have to sort of um, make promises and things. So they end up making docile wives, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of, it's not really feminist, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's got a weird take. Like, it's kind of yeah. hard to nail down his take on feminism. What yeah, was- there's clear gender roles in this society. Women do have jobs and things, like the mm-hmm. Z is the. Um, uh, from the Council of Sages or whatever, right? Or the College of Sages, um, but there are clear gender roles. Uh, say female real staffs are designed for different purposes. They heal instead of destroy, generally, mm. or the destructive properties are downplayed rather. Right. Um, yeah. Well, so it's it definitely has the idea that women and men are are fundamentally different, but it has different yeah. ideas on how society itself should be organized around that principle. 
any thoughts, Jess, about like what that relates to? <laughs> well, I, I think he's he's trying to have it both ways. You know, he's he's satirizing them when they're feminists, when they're acting like like Victorian feminists, but then he also goes on to show them as be as after marriage being the ideal Victorian wives. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's having his cake and eating it too. <laughs> so would he, do you think he would be somewhat sympathetic to, because or whatever they would say, women's suffrage or whatever feminists were called at the 1870? I'm not sure what the, ter- the term would have been. Um, I think he, he would have been, I'm not sure he would have wanted women to vote, but he would have been sympathetic to getting better working conditions for them, that sort of thing. Um, hmm. His Certainly his society novels and even some of his occult fantasies show some real sympathy for the female characters. Hmm. Um, yeah. But at the same time, high society women gave him no end of grief because of his marriage. And right. so he's probably more, he probably would have been more sympathetic to working class women than to upper class feminists. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it doesn't, it definitely doesn't come off as, you know, oh, uh, them, them ladies. But you know, even if he's satiring, it doesn't. If he's being satirical, it doesn't really come off as uh, as contemptuous. It's just uh, there's some weird ideas in there that is that are hard to parse, basically. So. Oh, something I I thought of that was interesting. Uh, the uh, there's a Lovecraft, a later Lovecraft story called The Mound, mm-hmm. um, which is basically Lovecraft's idea of this story. There's no evidence that he talked about it that way but it's basically the same thing uh it's about a guy who un- who discovers an underground civilization under oklahoma uh that's uh they're aliens but they're uh related to native americans they interbred with native americans it's not as racist as lovecraft as you would expect from lovecraft it's still racist but yeah. not as racist as you would expect uh-huh. but they're an advanced race and all that and the woman falls in love with him and so it's basically the same story but a lot more horror based hmm. anyway i thought that would be surprised. interesting given lovecraft i'm surprised that's not an excuse for a lot of yeah the, it was uh, co-written stuff. by somebody else so i i don't know how much that was yeah. the other author but apparently uh uh, the other author just basically said uh, gave a rough outline and Lovecraft uh, made up this whole underground civilization thing that mm. that was sort of his idea uh, I actually like that story a lot it's one of my favorite Lovecraft stories even though it's pretty obscure it does tie into the Cthulhu thing because they worship Cthulhu mm. so uh, that's something you can read if if you're interested anybody who's listening to this yeah anyway um but yeah. Oh, and uh, also one last thing: there's no movie adaptations of this book, <laughs> but like uh, there is an upcoming uh, movie called Iron Sky: Colon the Coming Race. Uh, it seems to use not just um, if you haven't heard of Coming Race or er, uh, Iron Sky, it's a sort of pulpy, uh, slightly satirical movie about uh, Nazis on the moon who come back to Earth and try to invade. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I thought at the time that the satire was a little bit broad, but uh, the recent events have maybe, yeah, I don't know, maybe it's pretty on the nose, yeah. uh, like a presidential candidate uh, using Nazi propaganda, <laughs> thinly disguised. So, 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'd have to revisit it because I haven't seen it since it came out. Yeah. And um, the new movie isn't getting very good reviews, which is too bad, but uh, I'm still looking forward to it. It Did seems they? to use some aspects of the novel, like uh, the Hollow Earth theory is a major plot point, apparently. Hmm. And the... Um, logo uh of the film includes the supposed frill society symbol from nazi germany which once again did not exist but you know as you say it's become a pop culture idea um any final thoughts there jess um well just that it is um it's a lot better written than most of the coming race is a lot better written than most of uh bulwer lytton's work and i think if you're interested in 19th century science fiction or in Bulwer-Lytton or in Hollowworth fiction, you, you could do a lot worse than starting with it. It's not a, not a flawless novel by any means, but it's better than one might expect. Yeah. It's, it's not long. It's a, it's a quick read. Yeah. It's quite short. Yeah. All right. Um, all right. Well, that's it for us today at What Mad Universe. We've been Philip, Adam, and Jess Nevins of the Council of Sages. Uh, anything you want to plug, Jess? Uh, I am going to be, in September, I'm going to be doing a Kickstarter for a role-playing game called Explorers of the Fantastic, The which will be out next spring. The tagline or the uh, elevator pitch for the game is challengers of the unknown fight godzilla (laughs) oh cool (laughs) all right our producer and tour was alex ross and our theme song was done by jack ferrick a very well-bred songbird trained by the vrilia that was a thing in the novel we didn't really mention anyway (laughs) nobody's gonna uh, get these references (laughs) um before we take leave of you i will impart with the final words of the novel um I have thought it my duty to my fellow men to place on record these four warnings of the coming race.